This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Andrew Walder about his really great new book, China Under Mao, A Revolution Derailed. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press, and the book really works very beautifully on two levels. On one level, it's absolutely um, a central contribution to the way that we understand and talk about the historiography of Maoist China and what came after. So there are many points you'll hear us talking about in the conversation to come at which Andrew uses his really detailed research and his synthesis of existing work on the topic to problematize and ask us to question some assumptions that we might take for granted about what's happening under Mao and what the consequences of that were and and how to understand not just what happened, but why it happened as well. On another level, though, the book is also a real pleasure to read. It's written in such a way that's so clear, so beautiful, and so attentive to taking our hand as readers and guiding us through the argument and showing us in detail, but in really pleasurable detail, how to get from point A to point B, that it's the kind of book that's not just accessible, but that's really a pleasure to read, whether you are a specialist in the topic or whether you're coming to the book with absolutely no background whatsoever in modern China, in Chinese history, or anything like that. And so I felt like I came away from the book with a much, much clearer and much better understanding of what's happening in this period, and in particular, the political and organizational structures that um, undergirded Mao's rule that really had uh, really profound consequences thereafter. So it's, it's a real pleasure to read. I think this is a book that will be widely assignable, not just to graduate students, as, uh, but also to upper-level undergraduates as well. And it was a real pleasure to talk with Andrew about it. So thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Andrew Walder about his new book, China Under Mao. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Andrew, and thanks for making time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start with um, a little bit about your background. How did you come to work on China and on modern China in particular? 
Well, I was a political science undergraduate at Johns Hopkins uh, in 1972 and 73, and the, the faculty member who was assigned as randomly as my advisor was a China specialist named Richard Pfeffer. Uh, and he had he was renowned for teaching, uh, being a very colorful and engaging and demanding undergraduate uh, lecturer. And he had also just been to China on one of the first academic delegations. And so um, I was attracted to take his courses and, and got the uh, China bug by taking them. And this, of course, was in the, in the middle of what we now call the Cultural Revolution. And so it was really a dramatic and fascinating country. Uh, I think also at about that time, Nixon had gone to China about a year beforehand. And I, and one of, I think Joe and Lai was on the cover of Time magazine. So there was a lot going on in the United States in the early 1970s. And I had studied a lot um, about uh, Marxism and the Soviet Union, and it struck me that, uh, that China was so different from the Soviet Union and so much more fascinating. That's how I really got into this. Great. So the book that we're here to talk about today looks at the ways that China's economy, its political system, and its social structure were really transformed in the 1950s. In order to understand why and how Mao's decisions and initiatives, among those of other leaders, had the effects ultimately that they did. Now, this focuses on the decisions, as you put it in the book, made by a core set of China's leaders prior to the Mao era, decisions that created a structure that, again, as you put it, served as the core of a new revolutionary state. Now, these decisions, as you describe in the book, created the organization through which China's revolutionary leaders sought to enforce discipline, and discipline is going to be really important in the moments to come, among their subordinates and make sure that the directives that they were laying down um, were being carried out. There were two organizations that were vital to this, and we're going to talk about this in the hour to come. One was a Communist Party apparatus that exercised really um, very um, strong and harsh discipline over its members and leaders. And the other one was a design for a socialist economy that was modeled on but then diverged from the Soviet Union, and that created loads of problems for the countries that adopted it. So we're going to talk about all of this um, in much, much more detail in the hour to come. Um, But to kind of get us started on that road, can you say a little bit about how you came to this project? Um, Why this particular topic? Why a book-length object on this topic? And uh, how did you get here from what you had been working on? Well, this this uh, the book is started out basically being based on an undergraduate lecture course that I teach as a general education uh, uh, subject uh, that's evolved over the last fifteen years uh, at at Stanford, but also um, had earlier incarnations uh, when I taught at uh, Columbia and at Harvard, and in teaching teaching on the Mao era, trying to encapsulate it as a whole it struck me that there was really nothing that you could assign to um, students or uh, the general reader could go to, to, to get kind of a synthetic overview of what, what it was all about. Um, and in, in, my, in my class, I could assign um, a, a series of specialized articles on different subjects, but in terms of weaving it into an overall synthesis, I had to do this through my lectures. Um, when I decided that it was time to try to put all this down and communicate to a broader audience, not just students and colleagues, but maybe people 
who aren't maybe academics who aren't uh, specialists on China or maybe a broader educated readership. I guess the book is targeted as something called academic trade. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I thought I would start with my PowerPoint slides and <laughs> uh, dig out uh, dig out the sources that were behind them. And as I started the project, I realized a couple of things. One was that my PowerPoint slides really were not that. <laughs> as good as I thought they were. Um, And so I had to do a lot more research and a lot of reading um, of of my colleagues' works on subjects that I really had not myself done research on. And I learned a great deal, basically, uh, from the beginning of the project to completing it. Uh, My views became much clearer. I think my PowerPoint slides are much better than they used to be. Uh, but I, I caught up on uh, basically two and a half decades of, of uh, research um, that the field in many of these specialty areas has moved beyond the kind of things I was, I was taught and I read in graduate school. Uh, and so I learned, I learned uh, I, basically from the beginning, I, I got a very new, pers- <laughs> new perspective on how the Communist Party took power. Um, what, what I was taught in graduate school uh, was that it was a guerrilla movement, and that's how it won the hearts and minds of the Chinese people. But when you go back and look at the progress of that movement, uh, actually the Civil War period looks much more crucial, uh, and the approach of the party towards the population in the Civil War period looks much more important in shaping not only the victory, but the revolutionary state that, uh, uh, that, that was created in the 1950s. So, you know, I got started on this uh, basically thinking, well, why don't I try to put together for a broader audience my, my lectures? But in the course of putting them together, they became transformed uh, and uh, the argument became uh, much more advanced and much, much different than where I started out. So let's get right into it, um, because the first chapter from the very beginning takes us there. So the book builds, um, as you've already described, I think really nicely, it builds on work that has already established um, in many ways what happened in China after 1949, but it really shifts our attention to asking why it happened and to building up um, sort of what what an answer to that might look like. And I think what we'll find by the end of the book and by the end of our conversation today is that the answer to that why has a lot to do with kinds of organizational structures and political structures that um, don't tend to be emphasized in some work on the history of Um, the events that happened in the period you're looking at. And it's really, really interesting. And so this is one of many ways that the book is at um, a number of key moments in the chapters that we'll talk about, really um, not just giving a very easy to read, and by easy I mean pleasurable, right? I mean, this is written in a really clear way that's really pleasurable to read, account of what's happening, but also really substantively contributing to uh, major historiographical revisions at some points of how we understand um, the whys of this process. So the core theme that runs throughout the book, as you put it here, is that the results of Mao's initiatives were often unintended, unanticipated, and unwanted. And this is not just by the broad population and the leadership of the party, but also by Mao himself. So unintended, unwanted, unanticipated. Why is this such an important theme to stress? And why, do you, um, why is this so important to lend to the way we understand this period and this historiographical phenomenon? Well, I think, um, um, first of all, I think, I think 
they were unwanted and unintended um, and unanticipated because the um, the same organization, the same approach to seizing power and consolidating uh, the transformation of China in basically up to 1957, uh, those, that approach worked very well. And I, I tried to make that very clear uh, in the first few chapters of the book that uh, first of all, the, the, the incredible discipline of party members and also the discipline over the army in the Civil War was probably the most important reason why the communists were able to outlast the nationalists uh, in the Civil War. It was a very differently structured party, much more disciplined. Uh, and that same discipline was used to carry out some incredibly revolutionary transformations of China from 1948 or 49 up until about 1956. And if you compare, I tried to do briefly in the book, compare the progress of the great, the institution of this basically Soviet style state and regime in China in the fifties, that process went much more smoothly in China than it did in Eastern Europe during the same period of time, because you had, you had a series of uprisings and rebellions uh, in countries like Bulgaria and East Germany, what became East Germany, Czech Republic, and later Poland and Hungary that um, made the process there a very tumultuous, uh, and there were lots of starts and stops. And by contrast, uh, China, a much, much larger country, much larger population of totally transformed rural life. They totally transformed the rural economy and social structure twice. First of all, they created this uh, land reform, which uh, gave land to the tillers all throughout China. And that was incredibly revolutionary, broke the back of the traditional elites uh, and created a small holding capitalist form of agriculture. But then no sooner had they established that than they moved on to create Soviet style collective farms. And that process was also relatively smooth. It wasn't without its, its problems, but it was relatively smooth, uh, especially compared with the same process in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s, which was accompanied by a gigantic famine. And uh, so basically the collectivization of agriculture was com- completed by 1957 uh, without, without the terrible uh, side effects um, and, and the brutality that the process had uh, uh, taken place uh, in, in the Soviet Union. So uh, during the early part of this period, what worked really well for Mao was this kind of organization. And he was, and, and I want to stress that, that, um, my take on the regime is not the usual take on a dictatorship, which is that uh, the rulers and, and their political apparatus it, it institutes harsh forms of repression over the population. What I think is really important is we have to recognize that the party's own members, the party's own cadres, were also placed under enormous pressures. And if they failed to perform, if they failed to exhibit the uh, desired Discipline. They also were subject to harsh, harsh punishments, uh, and this is what made them uh, very responsive to what Mao wanted them to do uh, in transforming China from forty-eight to fifty-six, fifty-seven. Uh, but it also led them to do uh, things that were that that caused essentially the revolution to go off the rails, beginning in nineteen fifty-seven and especially nineteen fifty-eight uh, and afterwards, because. Uh, the same uh, mechanisms that led um, the party's cadres 
to be so disciplined uh, and so energetic in carry out, carrying out um, uh, orders from above also led them to overcomply, to hide information about things that were going wrong with the policies. Uh, and um, that's what led to a series of disastrous outcomes beginning in the Great Leap Forward and then subsequently uh, in the various phases of the Cultural Revolution. Now, the beginning of the book um, from the second chapter really takes us into the, the circumstances under which that discipline became an effective uh, strategy and became effective for the Communist Party, right? And I won't um, ask you to talk too much about this because this echoes something that you've already mentioned, right? Here in this chapter, um, in looking at the rise to power of the Communist Party, one of the most important, one of the many important, I should say, things that's happening is that you're undermining or underplaying this legacy that says that guerrilla warfare and guerrilla um, communism um, was really what. Um, caused the communists to rise to power, and you're showing, no, it was actually discipline. It was militarization and discipline um, that allowed this rise to power, and that is important to understand right at the beginning, as you've um, already alluded to, because it ha- it's going to have major consequences um, as we get further into the story. And it's not just that discipline, but the willingness to attend to and to accord with that discipline among the party leadership and among um, members of the party more broadly conceived that had to do um, with, as you show in this chapter, a kind of confidence in Mao's judgment and leadership and a kind of an emphasis on obedience to him and to the party line. So after we establish um, the ways that this discipline becomes concreted into the party structure, right, and becomes such an effective means of mobilization, you take us in the third and fourth chapters into the ways that revolution is happening in the countryside and also in the city. Now, chapter three looks at the main outlines of revolution in the countryside, and here you're talking about um, some some of the material that you've mentioned before, right? There are two major stages of revolution in the countryside. Um, One of them is collectivization, right? This created, and you've talked about this, this created a radically new form of social and political organization. Now, that's important for listeners to understand, I think, um, in part because this emphasis on social and political organization is really, really important for understanding what the book is doing, right? It's not just what Mm -hmm. happened, but it's why it happened. Right. And you're also uh, making a point here that land reform, um, which was... um, Land reform conducted as class struggle, which was the other major stage, is actually a kind of state building as well with important economic consequences. So this is a moment, I think, for us to briefly turn to that. Um, Economics and the sort of economic consequences of these reforms are really, really important here. And one of the things that the book does so beautifully throughout the chapters, and this is perhaps um, an early example of something that happens a lot later, is taking us into the economics of what's happening. What's happening here in terms of the economics of class struggle in, uh, in the countryside? And for you, more generally, why is it important for, under, for us to understand the economic consequences of this political and social organization, for us to understand the larger argument you're making with the book? Right. Well, I, you mentioned that the first stage, land reform, really was about state building. <laughs> and... Um, um, Basically, China, rural China was ruled by property elites uh, for centuries. Uh, and 
uh, when th- their political power was based on their control of land and their control of, of uh, uh, financial financial means and also their monopoly of education to some extent. Uh, and basically, when the Communist Party was able to consolidate its control over uh, a locality, they implemented this kind of staged um, staged managed form of, of uh, class struggle uh, where they humiliated the elites and expropriated their property and redistributed it. Uh, and they did, they did two things. They, elim- they basically eliminated as an economic class the economic power of the traditional elites, but they also humiliated the ones they didn't execute. They humiliated and left uh, in a subordinate position. Uh, and the process of land reform itself uh, uh, basically brought to the fore uh, political leaders who usually were from a kind of middle class peasant background, in some, some cases from the poor, but they were really dominated by middle middle class peasants. Uh, and they became the new leaders of this new state, and they owed their positions to the Communist Party. And so uh, basically uh, by transforming, quickly transforming in a very short period of time this age old economic structure, they also basically transformed the class structure and at the same time uh, built the foundations for a new revolutionary state that extended from the capital all the way into the grassroots. And basically uh, in imperial China, the, the, state, the state's um, agents were not uh, uh, stationed any lower down than in the county seats. Uh, everything below that were basically personal retainers, uh, other elites that had connections with the official located at the county. Uh, the nationalists were never able to establish a, uh, a unified national government that reached effectively down into villages itself with salaried state officials. Uh, so one of the so basically two things happened with, with land reform. Uh, one was you transformed the old class structure. Uh, but you also built a new state that could reach right down into the grassroots. And that, that's a historic transformation. China's really first, I mean, I think that's the one enduring consequence of Mao's rule, uh, of Mao's strategy uh, of revolution, that he created very rapidly China's first modern national state. Uh, and that is the one thing that, uh, that endures to the present day. And that's the one thing, I think, for which Mao is still sort of revered. Uh, in China to the present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also mentioned the economic consequences. Uh, they, on top of that, uh, they moved very quickly from that to a Soviet-style collective set of collective farms. And Mao was the one who wanted to push very fast for this. He was basically, I wouldn't say alone among the top leaders, but he was the main person who wanted to move very quickly towards a Soviet-style economy. Most of the other Leaders, uh, people you can mention like uh, Liu Xiaoqi and Zhou Enlai, wanted to move more slowly. They wanted a period where you would build up rural prosperity through household farming. Uh, this, not coincidentally, is the, is the system of rural agriculture they shifted to in the 1980s after Mao's death, and it, it led to big increases in rural prosperity. They wanted to move more slowly. Mao wanted to move um, more quickly. Uh, and what that meant was um, uh, Mao wanted to implement a Soviet, um, Soviet what I call in the book, Soviet growth machine, mm-hmm. which was premised on controlling the harvest, uh, making sure that farmers, that farm families were not the ones who decided what to grow, what to invest, uh, how much to eat, how much to sell on markets, and at what price. 
the collective farms became a machine for extracting grain and other products at relatively low state fixed prices in order to feed a growing industrial working class in the cities who were engaged in higher value added, uh, more uh, capital intensive activities uh, in the cities. And that was really the secret to Soviet, Soviet Union's rapid industrialization. Basically, you controlled investment, you controlled, uh, you controlled the harvest, you controlled prices, and you decided how much would be saved, uh, how much of the profit would be saved, and how it would be redirected. And this was um, an industrialization strategy, and this, this leaps forward a couple chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an industrialization strategy that was premised on high levels of investment in industry, and in particularly in heavy industry, and it neglected things like housing and consumer goods industries uh, and um, uh, st- standard of living. This was, this was not a failure of the system. This was the way it was designed. Uh, it was designed in order to rapidly industrialize heavy industry, build up national strength. And the plan was, or maybe a generation, uh, keep living standards relatively spartan or modest, uh, basically to sacrifice for future prosperity. Um, so uh, unless you have Soviet-style collective farms, you really can't implement uh, a centrally planned economy. And so this was the reason why Mao wanted to move more quickly. I should also say that, that um, I really was not, when I did the reading <laughs> to write the book, as opposed to what I had in my lectures, I was never really um, that aware that, that the Soviet Union also was, uh, even Stalin himself was, when he was alive, he died in 1953, they were also urging Mao to move more slowly. And I think Mao, there's a clear sense, and this comes out in some recent scholarship of the last five to ten years on this period. Mao, I think, felt a little, felt a little resentful of the Soviets and the Russians' um, view that China was more backward and it was too backward to move rapidly to socialism. I think Mao did not like that very much. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why no sooner had Stalin died in, uh, I think it was the spring of 1953, he pushed very rapidly to collectivize right away. Now, the Soviet model was deeply flawed and pretty much failed everywhere it was attempted, as you show in Chapter 5. But this wasn't clear in the early 1950s, right, when China was implementing this model. And you take us yeah. through um, the sort of the designs, the implementation or the early implementation of this state socialist growth machine, right, in Chapter 5. Um, now, we ha- I, I just want to kind of mark Chapter 4 before we move on. Um, there's also a – we've talked a little bit uh, about the mobilization of um, sort of party – Discipline um, and the kind of collectivization and other efforts in the countryside. There's also revolution in the cities, which actually takes a really different shape. Um, in the cities, the emphasis of the party was very different from what it had been in the countryside. Right, it wanted to not wipe out the economic foundations of the old society, um, but instead to stabilize the economy and to promote industrial development. And this chapter for listeners who are particularly interested in urban history, right, and into how this played out in the cities, this chapter four on urban revolution really takes us through that process and looks at the establishment, among other things, of the household registration system and of the means of organizing neighborhoods into work units. And organization into work units is going to wind up having very profound ramifications, not just in the chapters to come, but in the years and decades to come. And even now, right, we see see how influential that was and still is. 
Now, as we move, though, into Chapter 6, we look at the extension of the party's reach in the 1950s into, as you put it, really every dimension of the country's government, its social institutions, and its enterprises. Now, here, the party's focusing on organizations that performed key government functions and that made major decisions about resource allocation, and it was focusing also on the training of China's future elite. So there was a particular emphasis in what the party was focusing on. And this had consequences, right? You take us through, um, in Chapter 6, really a transformation in the makeup of the party and the kinds of people who were attracted to it and the kinds of people who were promoted through it. The incentives for joining the party by this point were transformed, right, from the early stages where there was a choice that involved, like, sacrifice and risk and danger in joining the party to now the incentives were opportunities for career advancement, opportunities for education, um, motives for party membership were less transformed. Now, can you talk a little bit about that? Because the, that transformation in the makeup of the party and the incentives for joining the party um, was something that is, is actually going to be very powerful um, in terms of how Mao is thinking about what's going on, and it's going to be something that triggers uh, what comes next. So can you talk about that transformation and its um, immediate consequences? Right. Uh, in a way, this is kind of the central contradiction of, of the revolution. I, I think this was, um, you know, as I put the book together, it, it, I realized this was um, kind of central to a lot of, to, to the evolution of Mao's thinking, but also to a lot of what happened uh, later in, in the Mao era. Um, you know, when you set up a, a party that uh, a single party that is a, a bureaucracy that extends, basically, it creates a ladder of success. Um, and um, you know, before 1949, uh, as you said just a moment ago, uh, to join the party was actually quite a risky thing. Um, you you were expected not only to sacrifice your personal life, but perhaps even lay down your life. Uh, because the battle first with the Japanese and also with the nationalists was really quite quite brutal. Uh, but as the party consolidated its power, it it needed somewhat different kinds of people, people with more education, but also people who joined the party you know, out of a vague sense of patriotism, to be sure, but also that there were rewards for this. And when this party uh, basically, when you nationalize assets and create a state planning system, uh, the party, two things the party wants to control above everything else. One is uh, career patterns, who gets promoted into important positions, and, and, and the, other, the other is uh, where you allocate uh, investment and how, um, how economic resources are distributed. Um, and so um, once, once you set up this, it's inevitable that you end up with a bureaucracy. Uh, there's no way around it. Um, uh, and you begin to attract different people who um, uh, join the party and become cadres or state functionaries uh, for motives that are somewhat different than people who joined before 1949, the so-called um, revolutionary cadres. Uh, and um, there are already signs by the mid-1950s, and it comes out very clearly in the Hundred Flowers period, that uh, people who are in the party and also people who are out are perceiving a transformation of bureaucratization, a, a change from, um, you know, I guess somewhat mythical uh, notion of, of party members who are fighting for the people, fighting for the nation, to uh, 
bureaucratic functionaries who are very focused on career advancement uh, and who are treating ordinary people with less respect, with less consideration than, again, perhaps mythically, uh, cadres in in the earlier phase of the Chinese Revolution. Uh, And so... Um, the, the problem is this is this is really inevitable if you create a Soviet-style planning system in a single-party state. There's really no other way around it. Uh, but I think Mao was deeply disturbed by this development, and a lot of what he did later, uh, beginning in 1957, but also in uh, the Cultural Revolution, I think was a response to the troubling implications um, of, of this. Mm-hmm. Now, in uh, Chapter 7, you take us into some of the immediate consequences of this response, and you look very carefully here at his attempts to initiate a kind of liberalization in the way, on his own, in his own terms, on his own terms, but also in the wake of a transformation um, among the Soviets. And so in this period, what we have, and you take us into this in great detail, which is really, really helpful, actually, for readers who aren't deeply familiar with Soviet history, you take us into Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin at the Soviet Party Congress in February 1956. Now, the reason this is really, really important, among other things, is what comes out of this is a sense that China is kind of out of step with these developments, right? Mao is still trying to stay the Stalinist course, even while Khrushchev and others are repudiating that course. And there are consequences for that that wind up flowering in um, a number of campaigns, right? The 100 Flowers campaign um, is one of them, and you um, describe this. This backfires. So can you maybe take us into, in this period, what you take to be some of the most important and interesting things that are happening in the immediate wake of Mao's kind of refusal to diverge from this Stalinist course, what's most important and interesting to you about what's happening in this immediate period? Right. Well, it's only when I I sat down to do the reading and research for this chapter that I realized how very much China was out of step with developments in Eastern Europe. You know, Stalin died in 1953. Um, and uh, most of the leaders that he had put in place in what we called at the time the satellite states uh, of Eastern Europe, but also actually Tito in his early, early um, in Yugoslavia in his early incarnations, also quite a Stalinist leader. Um, these were these were people who were basically trying to carry out what Stalin had done in the Soviet Union in the late 1930s. So you had show trials, you had uh, basically uh, mass arrests. Um, but they also tried to implement a Soviet-style planned economy very rapidly. Now, it was much more difficult, as it turns out, to do that in Eastern Europe than it had been than it was in China, in part because uh, these were already much more urbanized industrial societies. They had uh, urban working classes and many of them a history of labor militancy, labor unionism. Uh, and so um, basically, after Stalin died, there were initial attempts by, by some of the leaders. Not, Khrushchev was not yet dominant, but they began to back away from some of the Soviet doctrines, uh, especially after some early rebellions in, uh, in 1953 in Eastern Europe, especially in East Germany, where there was a nationwide uh, uh, protest movement that all, almost overthrew the, uh, the German occupation regime. Um, 
And so the Soviets began to back off uh, in 1953 and called for two things. One, a slower move towards a centrally planned economy, a greater concern for workers' welfare, uh, but also an end of the political oppression, the campaigns against deviationists and authors who said things that were not totally in sync with the party line. So the thaw began in 1953 uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, and this encouraged a lot of indigenous communists in Poland and Hungary and other countries to develop kind of a more liberal uh, view of, of socialism, of, of communism. Um, now, Mao, Mao in China, uh, during this period from 53 to 56, was still doing things the way that these, these leaders in Eastern Europe had been doing before the shift in the party line. In other words, he was moving very rapidly to implement a planned economy. He implemented a series of uh, uh, campaigns against uh, anti-party cliques among authors, writers, intellectuals. There was a campaign to uh, cleanse uh, China of counter-revolutionaries in 1955. So now I'm not quite sure if he was paying attention to what was going on in Eastern Europe at this time, but he was very much out of step. Uh, now, this did not really matter too much until Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin in uh, February of 1956 which created shockwaves all throughout the communist world. Uh, it, it led uh, eventually, after several months, to um, rebellions in both Poland uh, and actually a revolution that overthrew the Communist Party in, in Hungary. Um, so the initial uh, denunciation of, of Stalin and Stalinism by, by Khrushchev created problems uh, for China's leaders to kind of explain, well, why were they still doing what they were doing? which was very much in the Stalinist playbook, but also after these upheavals in Eastern Europe, China's leaders had to think about uh, how secure actually was their rule and were they also vulnerable, as these regimes were, uh, to, um, to disorder if they began to liberalize in the way that, uh, that Khrushchev was insisting. Mm-hmm. Now, you take us through um, in this chapter the backfiring, right, of the Hundred Flowers campaign, the anti-rightist campaign um, that Mao institutes right after, and you show us, among other things, the ways that this actually laid the foundation for the Great Leap Forward, okay? This is, among other things, um, understandable in the context of Mao trying to kind of prove something, right, to Khrushchev and others, trying to outdo Great Britain. Well, the consequences of this um, were disastrous, now, this cha- the eighth chapter, chapter eight, looks at this massive industrialization project in the Great Leap Forward, which was a horrible failure. Now, though failure was inevitable, as you put it here, disaster was not inevitable. Disaster was created instead by what you call the politics of the leap. So can you talk about that? Um, what do you mean by the politics of the leap? And um, what's important for us to understand about this argument? Right. Well, you know, the economics of the leap were that people should work harder. Uh, they should work involuntary overtime. Uh, that uh, farmers should uh, basically not rest when they're not harvesting, when they're not planting. They should also uh, be mobilized for campaigns to uh, build dams, irrigation works, terrace fields. Uh, and so forth. And that and, and workers in industry should uh, speed up processes. Uh, to greatly increase output all throughout the country. And I think the, you know, the basic idea was very simple. If uh, you can get the farmers to greatly increase output of staple grains in particular, 
Uh, and if you get workers to um, increase output of products, that you'll get this virtuous cycle of, of basically increasing, increasing availability of goods that can be used either to feed uh, urban workers or to uh, lead to the expansion of factories and factory outputs. And so that was, that's the basic idea. Now, it turns out that's not a very good idea. It didn't work out very well. Uh, for in part because of uh, consideration, especially in industry, uh, that you can only increase output by reducing quality, and that leads to the waste of resources in producing things. Um, also, a lot of the uh, projects that were uh, rural projects that were put in place were not done uh, with uh, good engineering advice. So the the, the dams uh, did not um, hold water. Uh, the uh, canals didn't work as uh, as anticipated. But, you know, that, that's not what led to the disaster. That's not what led to the collapse of the economy. The, the, as you say, was the politics of it, which put great pressures on cadres at all levels to conform uh, with, this, with the demands of this very um, um, uh, speeded-up notion of industrial development. And in particular, the Greatly Forward was launched in the midst of an anti-rightist campaign. Uh, and uh, so basically rural officials were told, you know, that they should, they should um, be loyal to the party. Uh, Mao made clear that it was collectivization and it was rapid industrialization, which is, was Marxist, which was the correct view. And the idea that you uh, move more slowly or that you rely more on fam- rural farm families or on uh, market-based incentives was basically a capitalist point of view. And so as the campaign began, he pressured um, each level of the party, pressured cadres to pledge enormous increases of output, no matter what they were in charge of, whether it was agriculture or industry. And this was a sign of political loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, then when things began to go badly um, and uh, there were food shortages in the countryside and industry began to break down, um, this was something that basically everybody knew about, uh, but they were afraid to speak up uh, too much about it. But it was by 1959, it was pretty clear uh, at a party meeting in Lushan that they had to adjust. Uh, they had to adjust the uh, the policies of the Great Leap Forward. Uh, Mao reacted very uh, defensively. I mean, he knew what the problems were, but he reacted very defensively to a letter from the Minister of of Defense. Hung to Hawaii, uh, which for some reason made him feel very threatened. Uh, and his response was to organize a second anti-rightist campaign against all of those who doubted the general line behind the Great Leap Forward. And this led to a, a, another campaign that was carried out just when the famine was beginning uh, that prevented officials throughout the country from reporting that the farmers were running out of food. Um, and also... Uh, they felt compelled as a matter of political loyalty to turn over larger amounts of grain to the state. In other words, pump it out of villages where uh, farmers were already starving and deliver it to the state. Again, as a sign, not just that they had, they had, uh, that they had succeeded, uh, but that they were loyally carrying out the, uh, the Great Leap Forward. Uh, there was also a campaign that was kind of within the second anti-rightist campaign to punish local officials who were, as the argument, when they said, the argument was, when they said, we have no more grain down here to give, there was a campaign against hiding 
uh, hiding grain and falsifying reports. Mm-hmm. Words, if you reported, if you reported that um, you, there was no more no more grain to be given to the state, and the farmers were already already starving, uh, that was seen as a sign that you actually were opposing uh, the Great Leap Forward, opposing the General Line, opposing socialism. So there was a campaign which actually was shockingly brutal against local officials in the countryside. Um, this comes out most. Uh, most clearly in um, a very lengthy work by Yang Jisheng, uh, which is uh, 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 translated into English as Tombstone. I think it's Tombstone, um, which, which details this very brutal campaign against local cadres who are trying to report the truth but get punished for it. And so uh, this is how the politics of the leap led to the disaster. It wasn't so much that the, the, the basic idea of working harder was flawed, uh, you probably would have had a great leap forward that didn't really leap that much far, far forward. But uh, it was the politics that really turned it into a disaster because uh, cadres throughout the system overcomplied. They lied to their superiors and they carried out orders that uh, they knew to be flawed and knew to be disastrous because otherwise they would have been punished. So this is kind of a, the, the classic case in the, at the heart of the book where the same organization that had led to the great victory in 1949 by pushing people to their utmost limit in, in a military conflict. This turned out to be an enormous disaster in the context of a production campaign. Now, disaster, um, what that means and, and what that looks like, this is something that is dealt with in various chapters of the book, and we won't have time to talk a whole lot about that in detail, but just to mention um, to listeners one of the many kinds of work that the book does to really push back against some prevailing, somewhat propagandistic explanations for some of the events and and descriptions of some of the events that are happening in the scope um, of time that the book covers. Um, One of them is, uh, has directly to do with the Great Leap Forward. And there is a lot of conversation out there that holds that the disastrous consequences of the Great Leap Forward were about natural disasters. And, you know, things happened. Um, It was really just a series of natural disasters. And one of the things that the book shows, I think, very compellingly is, no, there were decisions that were made that created famine. Um, and you go into the numbers and you go into the, the extent of that. And I just want to mark this because it's one of many places that the book is helping to problematize some dominant, um, in some areas, dominant um, explanations for what happened in this period that um, I think we need to look a little bit more critically at. And you're showing that very compellingly here. Well, I'm able to do that because um, for the last 20 years, you know, China actually uh, is quite open uh, about, you know, we always talk about how it's um, a relatively closed and secretive regime, but but the Chinese state since the Mao era has really been quite open in revealing statistics, uh, in laying out data for people to analyze. And um, there, there have been a series of younger economists uh, beginning in the, in the 1990s who look very closely at the data on weather, on, on, on crops and compared year by year, month by month. And they've developed very clear uh, statistically-based estimates. So, you know, how much of the um, famine was caused by floods, by drought, uh, by policies of extracting rain. And it's, it's really very clear. There were, you know, it's, it's very, uh, I don't want to use the term scientific, but very evidentiary-based, and they've really use these data to pinpoint exactly when and when and why uh, the famine begins. And it turns out that that uh, 
there were fewer droughts, fewer floods uh, in 1959 than there were in 1957. Uh, and while, yes, it would have created difficulty, um, uh, the, the, the Chinese system was set up to be able to move grain to areas uh, where uh, farmers were short. But in the context of the Great Leap Forward, they were doing the opposite. So it really was the policy uh, and the politics of the leap that created uh, the famine. I, I should also say that I take a relatively, just as a footnote, I take a relatively conservative position on how many well, how many people starve to death. Uh, you know, the standard uh, number based on uh, work by demographers has been about 29 to 30 million. Uh, recently, historians have suggested, after looking at some archives and some discrepancies, that the number could be as high as 50 million. Uh, I think that's impossible. Uh, I think if you know how demographers look at age structures of populations, uh, there's no way to hide 20 million people who died. Um, so I, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm fairly um, consistent in the view that, that the number really is about 30 million. Now, that's pretty bad already. Uh, but increasingly, as the historic, recent, more recent historiography is developing, some people are giving credence to a number that's much, much higher, and I just don't think that's possible. Well, regardless of what the numbers were, there's a collapse that you're showing here um, of the Chinese economy in the early 1960s that you put it, um, for listeners who may not be, um, for listeners for whom comparative descriptions are, are helpful as a way of understanding the magnitude of this collapse, this was as severe as the U.S.'s Great Depression, right? And as, we, as you take us into the next chapters, we won't have time to talk about all of these in detail, um, but I'll just mention some of the highlights of the consequences of the aftermath of the Great Leap Forward and the political fallout specifically. So the political fallout rapidly leads to the Cultural Revolution, Okay, uh, and, and you take us into that in detail in at least a couple of chapters here. Now, Mao at this point has a perception of the ideological wavering of his colleagues. He breaks with the Soviet Union and he prepares eventually for what you call a spectacular assault on the party state. Now, this um, generates a series of purges that launched what becomes known as a cultural revolution. Now, you ask us, um, in a moment in Chapter 10, you ask us, what did Mao have in mind? Sort of what was the point, what were the goals of the Cultural Revolution? It's hard to say. The reason why that's important to mark um, is this is one example of a larger argument we've been talking about um, and that we will continue to talk about until the end of the book here and in the end of our conversation, which is um, the importance of unintended consequences and the, um, the need for Mao to shift approaches and to kind of shift gear midstream and the ways that that ultimately shaped the history um, that we have here. So this is one moment where it's really clear that you're showing us, you know, it's unclear that there were um, absolutely clear goals um, in mind here. It's unclear that he knew what he wanted to do. Um, and that's important to understand because um, it sort of sets the stage for us understanding the shifting of gears that happen afterwards that has really major consequences. So um, in the next couple of chapters, 
um, you take us into the you know the red guard, right? The rebellion of high school and college students. The students get out of control. Mao decides to bring industrial workers into the campaign. Chapter eleven looks at the consequences of that decision. There's um, ultimately uh, factory workforces split into factions. Workforces collapse. Large cities become ungovernable. By the end of 1966, most provincial governments are on the verge of collapse, and he's re- he's ultimately forced to. Resort to martial law to deal with the situation, which is spiraled beyond his control. Okay, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that's happening in a lot of chapters that gets us to this point, <laughs> but um, but we're now at this point, right? And this takes us into chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 looks at the work that the army did to restore order, um, but you you mentioned that this this phrase "restoring order." isn't really what's happening, right? There are actually radical social changes and new campaigns of unprecedented scope that are happening in this period. There's a nationwide crackdown. Okay, so for you, um, so I'm going to hit the ball back to you since I've been doing a lot of the talking to get us here. Now that we're here, what's most important and interesting for you about what's happening in the context of this military uh, crackdown in chapter 12. What's, what's um, some of the most important transformation that's happening in your mind at this point? Right. Well, you know, uh, this, this happens, this begins in different provinces uh, anywhere from March and April of 1968 until early 1969. And, um, you know, we think of this, I guess the first wave of scholarship on China about the Cultural Revolution, uh, articles that were published in 1969, 70, 1971. That was the big story coming out of China back then. And the, the main way that this was pre- presented in that scholarship, and it's under, quite understandable, was that this was a restoration of order. Um, but, you know, over the years, uh, as we've, we've gotten much better information about what happened, th- this is where most of the really radical changes that we associate with the Cultural Revolution were implemented. The period, as you said, the previous two years were very complicated, tumultuous sets of rebellions, uh, factional struggles. Uh, Mao eventually was forced to rely on the military because the party organization that we described in Chapter uh, Six as being meticulously built up was really destroyed, and the civilian state really. Um, it, it, there were still structures in place, but there were there were only a few uh, surviving cadres from the earlier period who were carrying out the functions of the party state, and, and the, it was essentially the party organization within the army that was still intact that was sent in to govern uh, most of the local localities in China, from the province uh, down, in many cases, to the county. Um, but, but they didn't just restore order. Uh, they, they implemented a series of really quite radical social changes. They closed the universities. Um, they sent some of them out of Beijing into the provinces. Uh, they started to send students, uh, all students, all young people, to the countryside. Uh, they broke the career chain between high school and college. So there were no longer college entrance exams and annual admissions to universities. Universities were closed until 1972. Uh, in the meantime, uh, very large percentages of cadres who worked in bureaucratic organizations and offices, white-collar workers and staff, um, including university faculty, university administrators, were sent to uh, these uh, rural camps known as May 7th cadre schools, where they performed manual labor, somewhat punitive manual labor. It wasn't a labor camp, uh, you know, a, a prison camp, uh, but they performed manual labor for anywhere from six months to two years. 
you had huge amounts of the urban white collar educated workforce being sent to the countryside for a kind of punitive form of, of manual labor. You also had during the, this is the period when the, the greatest extremes of the Mao cult uh, uh, <laughs> flowered. Uh, and so this was a period where everyone had had a, a photograph of Mao in their home. It seemed every village, every office. Uh, they people were induced to do dances that demonstrated their loyalty to Mao. And this was in the midst of a campaign called the cleansing of the class ranks, where people who were uh, also led by the military and their civilian uh, partners uh, was probably the largest. Um, campaign for hidden traders in, in the entire Mao era. Mm-hmm. Uh, the largest number of people, by far the largest number of people who were arrested or who died uh, were uh, uh, suffered during this period. Um, if you look at the, uh, the death rates during different periods of the Cultural Revolution, they really spike during 1968 and 1969. And these were people who were being brought in in a very systematic way by military uh, and civilian security people, they were accused for any number of reasons of heading uh, underground anti-party groups. Uh, in many cases, they were not only coercively interrogated, uh, but tortured to confess. And when they confessed, they were then uh, forced to name collaborators. And so you get very large numbers of people who are imprisoned and executed during this period as uh, members of anti-party groups. It could be anyone. It could be people with uh, backgrounds as Red Guard or rebel leaders who were particularly recalcitrant about the reimposition of power. It could be people who had uh, uh, relatives abroad in Taiwan and Hong Kong, people whose grandparents had been landlords. It could be just about anybody during this period. And so against the backdrop of this really draconian campaign that you have the flowering of the Mao cult. So, you know, someone says, let's stand up and, and do a dance uh, and sing about our loyalty to Chairman Mao. Who is going to say no under those circumstances? I mean, it just so if you look at this, uh, you know, it looks like ordinary Chinese are going nuts in a way mm-hmm. uh, in their adulation of Chairman Mao. But to me, that's a very small price to pay to go along with these things. When the alternative is to be uh, targeted in one of these investigation loyalty investigation campaigns. Now, oddly enough, this this did not really end uh, until Mao at one of the party congresses, made a side comment about, what's, are we going a little bit overboard with all of this? And it wasn't until he said this at a central party meeting that leaders in the localities felt that they could back off and slow down. And so you began to get a, kind of a slackening of the Mao cult, the parades. Uh, there's a kind of a, in, in retrospect, a somewhat hilarious um, story about a gift of mangoes uh, that were given to Mao and, uh, by a, a, a Pakistani uh, foreign minister uh, who he gave, he, he in turn gave the mangoes to several model work units in Beijing and they became an object of venera- veneration and loyalty and that's probably the low point um, of the Mao cult. Uh, but this period really came to an end when uh, Lin Biao died mm-hmm. uh, in September of 1971 and that was really a turning point uh, in what we now call the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution, but also a turning point that you began to see China moving away from the, the high point of Mao's Cultural Revolution and towards a post-Mao China. Mm-hmm. 
And chapter three looks at the transformations um, that come as a result of Lin Biao's death. So we, like, because we're getting to the end of our hour, we won't have time to talk about them in detail, but I will just um, mark this orally for listeners. Um, chapter 13 looks at what you call um, a shock wave or shock waves that decisively altered the course of Chinese politics that resulted from Lin Biao's death in an airplane crash and the major changes that followed. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting detailed attention to that in Chapter 13, um, at the end of which Mao rapidly, um, his health rapidly deteriorates, he gets really sick, and he dies. Now, Chapter 14, the last chapter of the book, looks at the state of the nation after Mao's death. Now, as you put it here, China at this point was badly broken. Um, Though the economy grew, China had fallen far behind um, other socialist countries and East Asian economies. Wages had declined. Housing space was not sufficient. Consumer goods um, were in short supply. The university system and public administration were in shambles. There was poverty, dire, dire poverty in rural China. Um, And ultimately, the legacy that Mao left was what you call the opposite of what he intended. Now, there's a lot of attention and a lot of detail um, that really gives flesh to the bones of what I've just articulated, um, but what I want to do is take us to the end. Right? The book ends with a call to rethink the legacy of Mao. Now, rather than viewing Mao's actions and their outcomes as, as you put it here, the product of a creative and daringly innovative politician, the book emphasizes the limits of his thinking, the rigidity um, and the dogmatism, as you put it here, with which he clung to outmoded ideas, his unwillingness to adapt, his unwillingness to learn um, from the world socialist movement. So why is it important today, as a way of maybe bringing this conversation um, toward its conclusion, why is it important to emphasize this different way of remembering Mao and to push back against this sort of selective remembering and selective forgetting? Well, Mao, you know, Mao, um, if we kind of back up for a moment to the reasons why he launched the Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, he he was in many respects daring and innovative uh, in that he was the only um, um, unopposed leader of a communist system to, to be willing to overturn what he'd created. Uh, and, and that's really quite unique. But he's also extremely radical. And the, the foundation for his thinking about what he did in the last decade of his life was really set in the late 1930s when he sat down in Yan'an and decided he was going to make himself into a real Marxist-Leninist. And he read um, basically Soviet textbooks that were coming out, the, the, the basic statement that, that Stalin sponsored uh, called The History of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union Short Course. He read that, and he absorbed its central lesson. And the central lesson was that as you move towards socialism, uh, there will always be class struggle. There will be a struggle between uh, people who represent the uh, former oppressing classes who are trying to divert the course of the revolution. So Mao took this very much to heart. He believed it. Everything he said that I read while doing research for the book reflected this basic idea. I think in the past we used to think that when I was in graduate school, it was commonly thought that this was Mao's unique understanding of Marxism-Leninism. But uh, it was basically late 1930s Stalinism. Uh, Mao was willing to basically throw caution to the wind. 
and the reason why the Cultural Revolution went through so many twists and turns uh, was was that Mao was unwilling for several years to give up on his quest. He thought that out of great disorder, great order would a greater order, uh, a new order would emerge, and without struggle, without violence, um, uh, you would not get any kind of fundamental transformation. He had hoped to create a new generation of, of younger Chinese who had an experience that was like the revolutionary experience that his generation had gone through and that they would not be so career-oriented. They would not permit the party to become a bureaucratic form of oppression uh, over the Chinese people, basically, what is what he, he thought of that as uh, a reversion to capitalism. Actually, it was not at all. This is what I think was kind of his, the major limit to his thinking was that this was not a reversion to capitalism at all. It was, it was the, the inevitable consequence of creating a Soviet-style bureaucracy. Um, and what a lot of thinkers in Eastern Europe in the 50s and 60s uh, were, were, were trying to create a different form of, of communism, a more humane, a more liberal form. Uh, their point of view was that you reduce the power of the central state, you begin to rely on markets, you begin to uh, you, you stop carrying out these mass persecution campaigns against class enemies. This is what China did in the 1980s. Uh, but this was something that Mao was absolutely unwilling to consider mm-hmm. to the very end of his life. And you know what's remarkable about Mao, and I don't know if this is a positive a positive uh, uh, aspect of his uh, of him as a politician or a negative one, but he held very firmly to these principles as he understood them and was unwilling to compromise uh, until the very end of his life. And uh, what unfolded in the period after Lin Biao's death until Mao's death was that Mao was was willing to let leaders like Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping restore order and discipline and partially rebuild his governing apparatus, but he was unwilling to uh, let them implement the kinds of quasi-market-oriented reforms uh, that were eventually uh, and very rapidly uh, unfolded after Mao's death. Um, so, you know, I think, I think those were his motivations. And probably the really unique thing about Mao was that uh, you know, I don't view him as being someone who was driven by uh, uh, personal rivalries. I don't think he had any reason to worry about his personal authority. I think he recognized that if, if China continued the way it was developing, uh, that after his life, China would – the thing that really made him – really motivated him was, I think, an accurate awareness that after his reign was over, probably after his life, China would take a different direction. Uh, he thought it would be the direction of the Soviet Union, but actually it was – it turned out to be something more like the liberal – Countercurrents to, to this uh, standard Soviet system that people were talking about in the uh, 1950s and 60s in the Eastern Bloc. Um, so, I see him as someone who had a very, very clear understanding of of the trend in his country, but with a flawed diagnosis of the reasons for that trend. Uh, and so, he was really unwilling to depart from the standard Soviet-style economic model. Uh, he just wanted it to be run by uh, political cadres uh, who mobilized ordinary people to do uh, extraordinary things. Uh, he did not want to rely on material incentives. He didn't want to emphasize solely uh, rises in, in living standards. He certainly did not want to rely in any way on markets or any kind of concession to private enterprise. 
And that's what marks him out really as a Stalinist of the 1930s, but with very pronounced uh, and unique in many ways Chinese characteristics. So, Andrew, we're now at the end of our time, and we're um, definitely not at the end of the things that we could say about the book, right? There's a ton of stuff in here we didn't have a chance to get to, um, but of course, the interview hopefully will whet the appetite of listeners who will then have a chance to read the book in detail. But in the interim, is there anything that you'd like to mention for listeners um, who haven't had a chance to, to yet read the book? Um, hmm. Well, we've covered a lot, we've covered <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, guess, I guess I'd like to emphasize, probably as the part of the book that represents most of my own, my own research, are the chapters that we, we jumped through pretty quickly, chapters uh, 10, 11, and 10, 11, really, which goes through all of the confusing twists and, and turns mm-hmm. of the mass movement phase of the Cultural Revolution. And this is, I think, where we see Mao as... Mao's a very interesting... I mean, he's, a, he's a, actually a fascinating figure uh, in many ways. He was not... He was not deeply disturbed by the disorder that was created uh, in 1966, 67, and 68. He only pulled back when it looked like uh, things were going to entirely fall apart and nothing, nothing conceivably positive from his point of view uh, would result. He 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 was quite willing to let the fighting uh, in 1967 and 68 between factions go on for a period of time. He had this this. I mean, he, to the end of his life, he really was a revolutionary and not a bureaucrat. He thought that something good would come out of the the violent uh, factional battles in the provinces. He thought something good. He wanted to let those things percolate for a long period of time to see what kinds of leaders would emerge, and maybe these were the people he could re- he could rely upon to create his new um, revolutionary state. But I think you know, in the end, uh, the collapse of state structures all the way down to the county level was far beyond I think what he had anticipated or even planned, and he was forced to rely on the army to try to keep things on an even course. The problem was that the army got drawn into the fighting between the factions. Uh, in other words, what was initially the cure, or the only organization he could use to keep this campaign on track, basically got sucked into the fighting and made it even more intense. And, and this is why he really had no option uh, in 1968 and 69 but to shut off, shut off the rebellion entirely and ship off the old Red Guards to the countryside in many cases. And it's kind of ironic that the top rebel leaders of this phase were punished under the army in 69 and 70 quite severely. But uh, um, then after the arrest of the Gang of Four, the so-called Gang of Four in 1976, they were arrested again and punished again. Um, and so, you know, but the interesting thing about Mao was he, he was not bothered <laughs> by the loss of control. And so as a political leader, I think, I think you know, he's remembered in China today as this kind of staid figure of created the, the China's first modern state, father of the country. It was kind of a mild-mannered photo of him on the national currency. Uh, he was never on the national currency, by the way, when he was alive. It was always workers and farmers and members of minority nationalities, sometimes driving tractors or working at a lathe. Um, you know, he, he was really a revolutionary. Um, 
And he remained a revolutionary to the end of his life, even though he was an unchallenged dictator in many ways. Uh, and China's leaders are, this is not the way he's remembered, and this is not what they want the current generation in China uh, to think of him as. Um, <laughs> uh, he's kind of a symbol of national pride, um, kind of an icon of Communist Party rule. But, you know, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, what they said about Mao and the Cultural Revolution was really very, very different and actually much more de in detail than what they talk about today. So I guess, I guess what, you know, I'd like readers, and, and not just readers outside China, but also uh, people who come to university from China in the United States or have a chance to read this, uh, I want them to remember their own history uh, in a way that actually... You know, it's not that much different than, I mean, the way I write this uh, is not that much different than uh, the party's resolution in 1983 about Mao and about the Cultural Revolution. Uh, or it's not that much different from the work of many party historians in China whose work is not widely published. Um, um, it's just that I, I go into a lot more detail and I say it in a way that probably makes some people in the party a little squirm just a bit. So now that the book is out, what are you working on now? What's next for you? Um, well, I, I, some of my friends groan when I tell them I'm still working on the Cultural Revolution. But <laughs> um, uh, my my last um, my previous book, which was I mean, this book is is a, a work of synthesis. I'm trying to pull together a coherent story about a broad period of history. But my previous book, based um, exclusively on primary source materials was about the Red Guard movement in Beijing, primarily in universities. It was a very micro, uh, uh, micro level look uh, at uh, the campaign um, uh, and the student rebellion in, in one city, in one set of universities. Um, the, the, the next book is going to, going to go macro and is going to look about the spread it's going to look at the spread of the Cultural Revolution, basically the collapse of the process whereby the state collapsed across China uh, between the end of 1966 uh, and uh, its recreation in 68 and 69. And this is based on um, actually over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, I've been collecting with many graduate student RAs um, accounts from local uh, local county and city annals of the events of this period. Uh, and we've uh, basically, over a two or three year period, we coded this into a, a data set that has information, uh, uh, dates and locations for roughly 35,000 events wow. uh, in China during this period. And so we're going to, I'm going to look at this, these data um, systematically in combination with narratives of what's hap what, are, what happened in large cities and also in counties to try to un unravel the process uh, whereby this gigantic mass movement got going and, and used the 35,000 events to kind of map what happened at what point in time to what degree of intensity. So that's, that's the next book. And I know some of my friends will groan when I say I'm still working on the Cultural Revolution, but, you know, the fact is it's really in many ways still an undiscovered country. Uh, and when I read books about, say, you know, the antebellum South in the United States or Reconstruction, and you look at the footnotes, you realize that hundreds and hundreds of monographs have been written about these periods. 
And the literature on the Cultural Revolution, whether in China or outside, is still extremely thin. Mm -hmm. And I think scholars um, have only begun to dip their toes into the enormous materials that are now available. Um, not our, I mean, no one's really been able to get into the archives, but there's a lot of material that's available outside of archives, so tens of thousands of pages of Red Guard and Rebel newspapers that um, scholars really haven't taken full advantage of. And uh, increasingly, uh, my partners and colleagues in, in this work are historians. Um, historians of the People's Republic of China now have moved well into the 1950s and are, are really just beginning to move into the 1960s. And so my great hope is that um, they'll really um, um, put some new energy into this field of, of study. Well, best of luck with that work, Andrew. And thanks so much for making time to talk with me about the book. It's a great book, and I'm really grateful to you for making the time. Well, thanks very much. I've really, really enjoyed this. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.